Let's read together from God's Word. We turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, and beginning to read at verse number 12. Paul's been writing in the opening part of the chapter of life in the Spirit, uh, that there is a spiritual warfare within us, but it is uh, a warfare that we engage in victoriously in Christ. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with with God's will. When we experience times of trial, times of hardship, perhaps some of the circumstances we're living through in our own situation, perhaps in your own family or personal life and other settings, when the trials and the hardships come, the one thing that above all keeps a person going is hope, isn't it? If hope perishes, or if there was never hope there in the first place, then very quickly despair will set in, and the trial becomes overwhelming. And there are many who are overcome by the trials and the burdens that life brings. And ultimately, it's because their hopes have failed 
or they had no hope in the first place. Some of the hopes, of course, that people cling on to, people around us in our community, turn out to be illusions. They're not real hopes at all. And indeed, isn't it the case that it's in a time of trial that the false hopes are exposed for the sham that they are? Now, Christians are people of hope. We have a hope that isn't fragile, a hope that can't be destroyed, because it arises not out of anything in us. It arises out of one in whom we are trusting. Christians are people of hope, because our hope is based on the Lord and on his saving work. And that's why Christian hope will not fail and why it can't be destroyed because it's not built on anything in us that would be a very fragile foundation. It would crumble very quickly. But our Christian hope is built on Christ and on his work. And that leads us really now into the last of our questions today, number nine. And we're asking the question, do you look forward to glory? Do you look forward to glory? Because this is the hope that sustains the Christian. This is the hope that you can never have outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you look forward to glory? I want to think, first of all, of the sure purpose. The sure purpose. We're thinking now about what we call, in the study of theology, the last things. Death, the next life, resurrection, and so forth. If you like a technical word, it's eschatology. Eschatos is last in Greek. And eschatology is the study of the last things. God willing, next term in the college, that's what we'll be looking at at the end of the course of study, the last things. But as we think of these issues, big issues, life and death issues, our focus has to be on God. We very easily become wrapped up in ourselves. Perhaps our fears, our anxieties, our questions. And they may all be very legitimate. But we need to focus on God. Our concern above all is with what God has promised to do. Because that is what gives us our hope. What has God planned and purposed? Biblical description to the plan and purpose of God emphasize its certainty. That perhaps is the one thing that stands out above everything else, the certainty of the plan and purpose of God. We plan things, you know, and perhaps they never happen. Or we have to change our plans. We do that all the time. But God is a God who plans and fulfills all that he purposes. No shortfall, no change necessary. 
Ephesians 1.11 puts it strikingly. Paul uh, refers to God as him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And that's a categorical assurance that the Lord will accomplish everything that he wills. He works out everything, not some things or most things, but everything, in conformity with the purpose of his will. It is a verse that is full of encouragement. It should lift our hearts to be reminded of that. For God, ultimately, there are no accidents. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's a sovereign God, and his will cannot change or be frustrated. Or if I give another text, Daniel 4 and 35, and this is from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. After that experience, when his reason was taken from him, God humbled him to the lowest and brought him to this point. Daniel 4.35, he says of God, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. I believe that is a confession of faith. I will not be surprised if we meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Because that's the point God brought him to. Acknowledging the Lord. That's true of all things in God's creation, but of course it applies particularly to believers' salvation. It shares in this certainty. Listen to Paul's confidence in Philippians 1 and verse 6. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There is believing confidence, full of assurance. The Lord will preserve believers in salvation. He will not let the Christian finally fall. But he will bring us to perfection, to full likeness to Christ that we thought of in our last study. We can look forward to glory. It's not arrogant. It's not presumptuous. We're taking God at his word. We can look forward to glory because of who he is. And he is the ground of our hope, the sure purpose. And that is full of encouragement for the Christian. This is your God, and he will complete all he has planned, and that includes your salvation, the sure purpose. Then building on that, secondly, we think of the glorious prospects the glorious prospects. To what is the Christian looking forward? Well, as we'll see, actually a better question is to whom is the Christian looking forward? 
We may think of all kinds of things that the Lord has prepared for his people, wonderful things, things that we should think about. But more than the what is the whom. To whom is the Christian looking forward? Because the truth is that the hope of the Christian is centered on the Lord. And everything that we are looking forward to is centered on him. Our hope includes many wonderful things, as we'll see. But at its heart is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being with him eternally. There are two parts to the Christian's hope that we want to take a moment or two to think about. Two elements in the Christian's hope. And let's take them in order the order in which we are going to experience them. We think, first of all, of in heaven. First part of our hope is in heaven. And the Bible makes it clear that immediately upon death, the believer enters the presence of the Lord. Our catechism gets it exactly right. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, And do immediately pass into glory. No unconsciousness. No soul sleep. No time when we are unaware of our Lord and Savior. Remember what Jesus said to the dying terrorist on the cross beside him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Not in a while today. As soon as he left this life, he would enter glory with Christ. Tremendous assurance for the Christian. It's clear, too, that Paul expected that to be true for him and for every Christian. He writes about it in Philippians 1. He talks about the tension. Should he carry on in this life with his ministry, or should he... Could he leave and be with the Lord Jesus Christ? And he expects, he tells us, Philippians 1.23, that he would eventually depart and be with Christ. Without getting technical about it, there's no gap left in what Paul writes there. To depart is to be with Christ. He's not looking forward to departing and then at some future time being with Christ. To depart is to be with Christ. That's why Paul can say, this would be better by far. Better than the imperfect fellowship he has in this life and this world. If Paul were anticipating being unconscious and unaware of Christ for some length of time, he wouldn't describe that as better than the conscious fellowship he now has. It is better because it will be immediate and it will be perfect. And that's what he was looking forward to. Better by far. Of course, there is much about the life of heaven that we simply can't understand. To be in heaven without a body, there's so many questions that flood into our minds, aren't there? 
And we can't answer them. We don't know. But what we do know is that we will be with believers who have gone before us. Hebrews 12, 23 describes Christians now. It says, you have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's the heavenly gathering of the saints. And now we can join with them in the worship of God. Righteous men made perfect. People ask sometimes, will we know each other in heaven? I've not the slightest doubt that we will. Won't that be one of the great blessings of heaven, to know each other and to talk with Paul and John and David and Moses and Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, I think so. And with one another. We will be with the saints of God. That fellowship will be wonderful. But even greater than all of that, we will enjoy the blessedness of unbroken fellowship with the Lord. No sin to spoil it. And you know and I know how our sin spoils our fellowship with the Lord now. And the days when our fellowship isn't what we want it to be and what we know it should be. But all of that will be past, and there will be no obstacle, no sin, nothing to spoil our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, when he's writing in 2 Corinthians 5, envisages two possibilities for the Christian. Two situations in which we find ourselves. One is, he says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 5, at home in the body. And that's where we are at the moment. But then he says, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. At home. There's a warm, domestic word. At home with the Lord. That's where we belong. With Christ. And that ultimately is what will make heaven what it is. We'll be at home with the Lord. It will be wonderful to join with all the people of God, but supremely we'll be at home with the Lord. And that is the sure prospect of everyone whose faith is in Christ, to be at home with the Lord. That's the first part of our, uh, of our Christian hope in heaven. But then the second part in the new creation. In the new creation. This disembodied life in heaven is not our final hope. That is not ultimately what we are looking forward to as Christians. The Lord saves us body as well as soul. And our ultimate hope as Christians is of a glorious resurrection. Our bodies will share in glory. The risen Christ is described in 1 Corinthians 15 20 as the first fruits. The first fruits were the first sheaf of grain that was brought in from the harvest in Israel, offered to the Lord, and it was a token that the rest of the harvest was coming. 
The first fruits was a token and a guarantee that the harvest was being gathered in. And Christ, the risen Christ, guarantees the resurrection of all who belong to him. Everyone will be brought in. So Paul can write in Philippians 3 and verse 21, Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's what's going to happen to every Christian. We'll be transformed and we will have glorious bodies like that of Christ, free from sickness and viruses, from weakness, from death. Now, no doubt, we'll have new capacities. Think of the resurrection body of Christ. He could appear in a locked room and disappear. How did he do that? There was a physical body he had, but it was the same but different. What capacities will our bodies have? The level of fitness, the strength, everything about it will be beyond what we have imagined. Of course, much of it we can't imagine. But it will be glorious, the Bible tells us. Christ has a glorious body, and every Christian will have a glorious body. When the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a transformation of every Christian, risen like him, and a transformation not just of individual Christians, but of the entire creation. We must never overlook the fullness of our hope as believers. The whole creation is going to be transformed. That's why we read from Romans 8. There Paul tells us this fallen, damaged creation is going to be, he says in verse 21, brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. As God transforms us, he'll transform the whole creation around us. God isn't going to scrap this world. He'll renew it. When you are saved, he didn't scrap you and create a new person, did he? He transformed you. And he will transform you at the resurrection. And he's going to transform the entire creation. The world, the universe. All the the damage that man's sin has done will be reversed. Brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Isn't that a wonderful prospect? The creation renewed. Parallel to the renewal of believers. The Lord is going to provide a suitable home for his people. A home in which we will live in our resurrection bodies. Some think this world is not my home. I'm going away to heaven. The truth is, ultimately, this world will be our home. A glorified, perfect creation. A home for the people of God. 2 Peter 3 13, Peter writes, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. That's the entire creation, the home of righteousness. The whole universe will be renewed by the power of God. 
The creation will reflect the glory of its creator, unspoiled by sin. Think of some of the beauties of the world that you see, that maybe you've traveled and visited and enjoyed. And the entire creation will be like that. None of the ugliness, none of the pollution, none of the damage. It'll all be gone. And there'll be a world full of sound and beauty and animal life and everything. Eden multiplied infinitely by the power and the goodness of God. Eden will look dim compared to the new creation that will fully reflect the glory of God. And that's the goal of our Christian hope. That is what we are looking forward to ultimately. Hope, yes, in heaven, but hope in the new creation. Wonderful things ahead of the people of God that we can hardly begin to imagine now. That brings us, thirdly and finally, to think of the transformed present. The transformed present. Because we could discuss these things in a very abstract way. And we could toss to and fro different bits of theology and different texts and passages And what does this mean and what does that mean? And it could become a a very cold, abstract thing. It hasn't much to do with, with life as we have to live it in this world. But these great truths are meant to have profound practical effects. All theology should be practical. And this is no exception. And in 2 Peter 3 And 14, we're told what some of the practical effects ought to be. Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, 14, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So there's to be a looking forward, first of all. That's very practical. Do you look forward Do you look forward to glory? There's just something vaguely up ahead there that that one day will happen. Do you actually look forward to it? Do you think this will be wonderful? And I really want to be part of this and experience this. And of course, it's only if you're saved that you will. Only the Christian can look forward to this. For the person who isn't a Christian, when that day comes, it will be beyond description what will take place. It will be horrendous, make no mistake. For the Christian, glory in the new creation. Looking forward to this. The word also has a sense of standing on tiptoes to see something up ahead. Anticipation, hope that gives us strength for trials today. That's why it's practical. Paul talks about our momentary afflictions. They're not worth comparing with the glory to come. And that's true. Are you looking forward to it? And Peter goes on, make every effort to be found 
spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It's the holy and godly life that he talks about just earlier in verse 11. If you have this hope, Peter's saying, if you're looking forward to this glory, that should really stimulate you to live a godly life here and now. It should stir you to serve the Lord as faithfully as you can, to become as like him as you can. So many people think, well, if your mind is on these future things, you'll switch off in this life. You heard people referred to, if you referred to them as too heavenly minded to be any earthly use. And there are people who just seem detached from this present world. But it's not because they're too heavenly minded. You can't be too heavenly minded. And the more heavenly minded you really are, the more earthly use you will be. We need more heavenly minded people. The problem is not too many Christians who are too heavenly minded. The problem is too many Christians who aren't heavenly minded enough. And you don't see beyond this present life and this present world for all practical purposes. If we have this hope, if we are looking forward to these wonderful things, it will stir us to be faithful, serving Christians while the Lord leaves us here. Do you look forward to glory? Is it something that really shapes how you think and how you live? That you have a hope in Christ, not just for this life, and not even for heaven to come, but in the fullness and the joy of the new creation. If we have that hope, then let us make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him.